0: Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons of the Great Books podcast, episode number 46, with our book today, Play It As It Lays by Joan Didion. From the fsg classics edition we pick up today play it as it lays by joan didion a novel uh, published originally in 1970 Uh, this book was one of didion's greatest Um, it stands as an example of didion's fiction uh, along with run river a book of common prayer democracy and The Last Thing He Wanted. Now, we covered Joan Didion last year. You might want to go back and listen to that episode. Uh, We talked about her great uh, initial nonfiction collection of essays slouching towards Bethlehem. We are also, in future episodes, going to cover The Year of Magical Thinking, and The White Album, as well as After Henry and Miami. As you could probably tell, I'm a huge Didion fan, and we're going to get into why I'm a huge fan. But we're also going to get into why Didion is important for leaders to understand. And we begin that process by reading directly from the introduction uh, to this edition of Play It As It Lays by David Thompson. And I quote, We have come into the age of the no-fault novel, rather like the blame-free divorce. Yet Maria seems unwilling to let that disclaimer slip by. On the other hand, she is smarter or cooler than the other people, and that opening sentence surely insists on the etiquette or the morality of being cool, in that she has learned not to ask the question. And here is the first sign of the gambler's ethos whereas the observer at any Las Vegas casino may see lives crack up in bare minutes in the neutral casino lighting, you may see a fool lose it all and see the pain and the hopeless future on the face of a wife. Still, the croupier or the spirit of the place has learned not to call the player or the play quote unquote evil. That is the way play can turn out. Someone loses here and over there someone has won. So don't ask or don't get involved. A croupier is a good model for a would-be novelist in our time. Be very sharp-eyed, remember everything you hear, but don't get involved. Go back to your room, imagine a croupier's room, and write it down in the same cool, if not cold, way. And it's in the distinction between cool and cold that the extraordinary grip of this novel is exerted just as it is a riddle that perturbs some readers who have trouble keeping the intelligence of Joan Didion and the repressed emotionalism of Maria Wyeth as parallel tracks ready to support and sustain the momentum of the book. And while I am deeply attached to the book as a modern classic, I think it would be wrong to ignore that tension, for the tension, or the difficulty in breathing, is what makes the book so compulsive. Close quote. From the introduction to Play It As It Lays, by David Thompson. And this is the thing about Play It As It Lays. Just like searching towards Bethlehem, um, Joan Didion was a keen observer of human behavior. And when she decided to fictionalize her observations, Based on her life with her husband um, in um, the late, great John Dunn, uh, John Gregory Dunn, um, she decided that she would write what she knew, just like any, uh, any author would write what they know, just like Virginia Woolf a couple of generations before her. Except Didion, and we'll explore this on the podcast today, was the anti Wolfian. She was probably about as far away from Virginia Woolf as you could get, and the only thing they shared in common in the ways in which they looked at the world was the fact of their sex. The no-fault novel has a lot in common with the no-fault divorce or no-fault car insurance or no-fault anything in our modern society and culture. One of the backwash effects of of the rampant, creeping nihilism of the 20th century has been this idea that relationships are things to be consumed, that they are disposable once they have run out of their use. We see this in Play It As It Lays, and Didion in this book chooses to focus on the gambling aspect of this while also subtly putting in the knife into the fact that we are all still captured by relationships. And uh, she puts this, uh, this dichotomy um, to the test in the relationship, in the marriage that is in the process of you know disintegrating um, during the course of the book between Maria Wyeth and Carter Wyeth. Uh, That forms really the spine of the book. And then a bunch of other things happen after that. And we'll talk about some of those things today. There's a child with an unnamed illness. There's people that are surrounding um, Maria and Carter in the film business who are playing their own games and invested in their own relationships. This is something for leaders to understand. Because relationships are based on gambling. We do indeed play it as it lays. And the more interpersonal the relationship, the higher the stakes. One of the challenges that we see from individuals uh, across the spectrum, leaders or not, is that they don't understand very often the game that they are playing. They don't understand the ground they have been sucked in on, they don't understand the other participants' motives, and they barely even understand why they are there. We see this in a whole lot of socially negotiated ways in our culture today, in the early part of the 21st century. And we see this friction developing between participants in a game unable to agree on the socially negotiated rules of the game and thus unable to agree on an outcome of a game. By the way, this extends out to politics and even ideology in our world today. This observation is not mere sophistry, and it is more than just the backbone of a fictional novel by a New York City come to Los Angeles, come from California, authoress of the 20th century. It's about understanding human nature, again, in the backwash of grinding nihilist existentialism. And it's about taking action in the face of that gamble. Didion understood something else, and we saw this in the episode that we did. We observed this in the episode that we talked about snatching towards Bethlehem. Uh, Didion understood that when the center of shared rules based on a shared moral agreement erodes, the gamble of relationships becomes fundamentally an unplayable game where everyone is out for their own ends and no one is looking out for anybody else. And that is the dichotomy. That is the Rubik's Cube we are going to try to make at least one side match up of today on the podcast. (music) Back to, play it as it lays, back to the FSG Classics Edition by Joan Didion. In the first hot month of the fall after the summer she left Carter, the summer Carter left her, the summer Carter stopped living in the house in Beverly Hills, Maria drove the freeway. She dressed every morning with a greater sense of purpose than she had felt in some time, a cotton skirt, a jersey, sandals she could kick off when she wanted the touch of the accelerator and she dressed very fast running a brush through her hair once or twice and tying it back with a ribbon for it was essential to pause she was to throw herself into unspeakable peril that she be on the freeway by 10 o'clock not somewhere on hollywood boulevard not on her way to the freeway but actually on the freeway if she was not she lost the day's rhythm its precariously imposed momentum Once she was on the freeway and had maneuvered her way to a fast lane, she turned on the radio at high volume and she drove. She drove the San Diego to the harbor, the harbor up to the Hollywood, the Hollywood to the Golden State, the Santa Monica, the Santa Ana, the Pasadena, the Ventura. She drove it as a riverman runs a river, every day more attuned to its currents, its deceptions. And just as a riverman feels the pull of the rapids in the lull between sleeping and waking, so Maria lay at night in the still of Beverly Hills and saw the great sign soar overhead at 70 miles an hour. Normandy, one-quarter, Vermont, three-quarter, Harbor Freeway, one. Again and again, she returned to an intricate stretch just south of the interchange where successful passage from the Hollywood onto the harbor required a diagonal move across four lanes of traffic. On the afternoon, she finally did it without once breaking or losing the beat on the radio. She was exhilarated, and that night slept dreamlessly. By then, she was sleeping not in the house, but out by the pool on a faded rattan chaise left by a former tenant. There was a jack for a telephone there, and she used beach towels for blankets. The beach towels had a special point. Because she had an uneasy sense that sleeping outside on a rattan chaise could be construed as the first step towards something unnameable, She did not know what it was, she feared, but it had to do with empty sardine cans in the sink, vermouth bottles in the wastebaskets, slovenliness past the point of return. She told herself that she was sleeping outside just until it was too cold to sleep underneath beach towels, just until the heat broke, just until the fires stopped burning in the mountains, sleeping outside only because the bedrooms in the house were hot, airless, only because the palms scraped against the screens and there was no one to wake her in the mornings. The beach towels signified how temporary the arrangement was. Outside, she did not have to be afraid that she would not wake up. Outside, she could sleep. Sleep was essential if she was to be on the freeway by 10 o'clock. Sometimes the freeway ran out in a scrap metal yard in San Pedro or on the main street of Palmdale or out somewhere, no place at all, where the flawless burning concrete just stopped, turned into a common road, abandoned construction sheds rusting beside it. When that happened, she would keep in careful control, Portage skillfully back, feel for the first time the heavy weight of the becalmed car beneath her and try to keep her eyes on the mainstream, the great pilings, the cyclone fencing, the deadly oleander, the luminous signs, the organism which absorbed all her reflexes, all her attention. So that she would not have to stop for food, she kept a hard-boiled egg on the passenger seat of the Corvette. She could shell and eat a hard-boiled egg at 70 miles an hour. Cracking it on the steering wheel, never mind salt, salt bloats, no matter what happened, she remembered her body. And she drank Coca-Cola in Union 76 stations, Standard Stations, Flying A's. She would stand on the hot pavement and drink the Coke from the bottle and put the bottle back in the rack. She always tried to let the attendant notice her putting the bottle in the rack, a show of thoughtful responsibility, no sardine cans in her sink. And then she would walk to the edge of the concrete and stand, letting the sun dry her damp back. To hear her own voice... She would sometimes talk to the attendant, ask advice on air filters, how much air the tire should carry, the most efficient route to Foothill Boulevard in West Covina. Then she would retie the ribbon in her hair and rinse her dark glasses in the drinking fountain and be ready to drive again. In the first hot month of the fall, after the summer she left Carter, after the summer Carter stopped living in the house in Beverly Hills, a bad season in the city, Maria put 7,000 miles on the Corvette. Sometimes, at night, the dread would overtake her, bathe her in sweat, flood her mind with sharp flash images of Les Goodwin in New York and Carter out there on the desert with BZ and Helen, and the irrevocability of what seemed already to have happened. But she never thought about that on the freeway. At the end of Man's Search for Meaning, There is no good or evil. Just the yawning abyss that stares back through you. Just as, ironically enough, Nietzsche promised. Now, as has been stated on the podcast before, I am not a fan of Friedrich Nietzsche, that original bad boy of philosophy. I am a person who is convinced that he was playing a game, uh, the game called Two Lies and a Truth. Now, you can go back and listen to our podcast on on, uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra if you want to check out more of my thoughts on Nietzsche. But when we look at meaning and when we look at the search for meaning, uh, that previous piece there that I pulled from Play It As It Lays, uh, that I quoted from Play It As It Lays, um, really does get to the heart of meaning, the freeway, the Coca-Cola, the cracking of the eggs, the moving across the freeway like a ferryman. Unlike Jane Austen, um, Joan Didion didn't search for meaning in action and in the external. Unlike Virginia Woolf, who searched for meaning in the self, Didion, instead, searched for meaning in the gamble, searched for meaning in the nature of what the action meant, not in the action itself. The riding of the freeway, like a shark rides the waves, is the primary example that Didion uses in play as it lays to discover meaning or to find meaning, to find something out of this meaningless mess that is Maria Wyeth's life. Maria searches the freeway endlessly throughout the course of the book for Nietzschean levels of meaning, and this process would prove to be as unsatisfying as drinking, doing drugs, uh, having sex, or getting divorced from her husband Carter. It wouldn't fill the abyss. Now, that lack of being able to fill the abyss means that the search for meaning there is probably the search you want to stop doing. (laughs) Uh, If you're not getting the thing that you want, you probably ought to go do something else. You probably ought to change tactics or, at the very minimum, rethink your whole strategy. Maria also, and we don't find this out until a little bit later, and we'll talk about the great opening lines in Play it as it lays a little bit later on in this podcast, but Maria is searching for the evil in the circumstances because identifying that evil, identifying that Luciferian impulse, that act of identification might provide meaning itself. The problem is Maria Wyeth and Joan Didion, as David Thompson said in the introduction, run parallel to each other. Didion coolly examining Maria, and Maria hotly pursuing identity and meaning, hotly pursuing what is underneath the why, underneath that Luciferian impulse towards things falling apart. And the problem is, there's nothing under there but chaos. There is no why. There's just the chaos. Now, you can claim that this is Derridian postmodernism, or you can claim that this is mere sophistry, I believe that's probably the second time I've used this that term in this podcast. But it's not. This is the logical end of the Nietzschean worldview. And leaders need to understand the logical end of this worldview in order to combat it, in order to put a flag in the ground and stake a claim to meaning and to have other people follow that claim, or the very minimum, to be able to have an argument with those people. Now, those very same other people can be a problem, right? Because they have their own claims to meaning. Perhaps not as fully thought out as the leader, but they do have their own claims. And sometimes those claims can be deceptive. Sometimes those claims can be valid. But many, many times, those claims are going to be probably not fully thought out, probably not valid, and probably half-baked. And leaders are going to have to persuade and get into relationship with the half-baked. Back to Play It As It Lays by Joan Didion, as I said before at the beginning of our recording today, the beginning of our podcast today, uh, we are reading from the edition published by Ferrer, Strauss and Giraud, um, written in uh, in 1970, um, and this paperback edition was published in 2005. Um, you can get it from your from your store. It's got a nice little snake uh, on the on the front of the pink yellow and white cover um so yeah let's get back to play it as it lays let's let's pick up this idea of relationship and explore this a little more from the writing of Joan Didion she looked at Carter sitting in the living room and all she could think was that he had put on weight The blue work shirt he was wearing pulled at the buttons. She supposed that he had weighed that much when he left. She noticed it now only because she had not seen him. You going to stay here, she said. He rubbed his knuckles across the stubble on his chin. All my things are here, aren't they? Maria sat down across from him. She wished she had a cigarette, but there were none on the table, and it seemed frivolous to go get one. Carter's saying that all his things were in the house did not seem entirely conclusive, did not address itself to the question. Quite often with Carter, she felt like Ingrid Bergman in Gaslight, another frivolous thought. I mean, I thought we were kind of separated. That did not sound exactly right, either, if that's the way you want it. It wasn't me. I mean, was it me? Never, Maria. Never you. There was silence something real was happening this was as it were her life if she could keep that in mind she would be able to play it through do the right thing whatever that meant i guess we could try she said uncertainly only if you want to of course i do she did not know what else to say of course i want to why don't you sound like it carter i do she paused suddenly she paused abruptly exhausted Maybe it's not such a good idea. Do as you want, he said, and went upstairs. Maria sat with her eyes closed until the vein in her temple stopped pulsing, then followed him upstairs. He lay on the bed in their room, staring at the ceiling. Only by an increased immobility did he acknowledge her presence. I was going out to see Kate, she said finally. How many times have you been out there lately? He still did not look at her. Hardly at all, she said, and then... In the past few weeks, maybe a couple of times, you've been there four times since Sunday. Resolutely, Maria walked into the dressing room and began pinning back her hair. They called me, Carter said from the bedroom, speaking as if by rote. They called me to point out that unscheduled parental appearances tend to disturb the child's adjustment. Adjustment to what? Maria jabbed a pin into her hair. We've been through this, Maria. We've done this number about 50 times. Maria put her head in her arms on the dressing table. When she looked into the mirror again, she saw Carter's reflection. There had come a time when she felt anesthetized in the presence of Ivan Costello, and now that time had come with Carter. Don't cry, Carter said. I know it upsets you. We're doing all we can. I said don't cry. I'm not crying, she said. And? she was not avoiding the real and embracing the pretend is the mode for the last couple of generations of folks Uh, it's interesting that we're talking about this book today the gamble that exists between human beings in interpersonal relationships um, when Didion wrote this book, the 1970s hadn't quite kicked off yet, and obviously the internet had not brought us the opinions of other people from all across the globe directly to our hands. When we are arguing with someone online, or even in real life, but let's focus on the online piece here for just a second when you're arguing with someone online you're not actually arguing with a real human being yeah 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 they may have their real name on their facebook page or they may have their real name in their twitter bio or they may have their real name on TikTok or instagram or snapchat or wherever it is you go to argue with people on the internet or in that Reddit forum, or via email, or, well, email's a little bit probably closer to being real. But you're not actually, the point is you're not actually arguing with that person. What you are doing is you are arguing with an avatar of that person in your head. That image, that set of words you see on the screen, or even that bouncing video you see, that becomes a box it becomes a repository it becomes a place to put all of your problems and your issues and your concerns they don't actually have anything to do with the person as they really are because you're never going to know them as they really are in essence when we argue with people in the pretend world of social media discourse We are gambling with fake money in a casino that Mark Zuckerberg built. Huh. We also tend to try to impose standards on that avatar, usually egalitarian ones, just like we try to impose those standards on people. And trying to impose those standards on people, even if those people are real, doesn't work, but it really doesn't work if those people aren't real. Because they could say or do or be anything, right? This inevitably creates a jog, a tendency, a movement towards a hierarchy in conversation. So you're listening to me on this podcast right now if you've made it this deep. And uh, there's some ideas floating around in your head about whatever it is I'm saying right now, which right now I'm talking about the real versus the not real the online versus the real life and you're thinking about what this means and this is creating a hierarchy see if you downloaded this podcast and if you're listening to it right now you've chosen me you've picked me you've engaged with me i i can't see you it's a one way interaction where I am recording this at some indeterminate time in the past, and you are listening to this at some indeterminate time in the future. And this is a game. It's a game being played across an infinity of time, or at least a time as long as this episode of this podcast is up on the Internet. This game playing creates a hierarchy, and this is what Didion knew. This is what she was exploring or attempting to explore in her pulling apart of the relationship with Maria and Carter. This creates risk, this hierarchy. It creates emotion. It creates a gamble. And it's unavoidable. And the worrisome thing for leadership is that we are rapidly, well not we, the technologists, want to give us a world where there's no risk. At least the technologists in the West do. No risk or reduced risk or where all of the risk is emotional, all the risk is intellectual, but none of the risk is physical. Because physical risk hurts. But as we are finding out now in our post-2020 world, emotional risk hurts. Psychological risk hurts. And as we seem to have forgotten, spiritual risk hurts. We can't know our own hearts as much as we may want to We can't know what we're capable of when we're arguing with the avatar online, when we're yelling at people on the internet, or when we are holding ourselves back in real life because of the imaginary social bonds that bind us together. There's a book that's older than Play It As It Lays, and that will outlast all remembrance of Joan Didion, and that book is the Bible. And in the Bible, in the book of Jeremiah, in speaking uh, Jeremiah the prophet to Israelites who were getting ready to go into Babylon because they had forgotten the rules of the game that God wanted them to play, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah seventeen nine through 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Back to the book, back to Play It As It Lays, as we turn the corner here. Uh, we're going to read a couple of different selections from the FSG Classics edition. I'll play it as it lays. And I quote, What makes Iago evil? Some people ask. I never ask. Another example, one which strings to mind because Mrs. Bernstein saw a pygmy rattler in the artichoke garden this morning and has been intractable since, I never ask about snakes. Why should Shalimar attract crates? Why should a coral snake need two glands of neurotoxic poison to survive while a king snake so similarly marked needs none? Where is the Darwinian logic there, you might ask that? I never would. Not anymore. I recall an incident reported not long ago in the Los Angeles Herald Examiner two honeymooners, natives of Detroit, found dead in their scout camper near Boco Raton. A coral snake still coiled in the thermal blanket. Why? Unless you are prepared to take... The long view, there is no satisfactory, quote-unquote, answer to such questions. Just so. I am what I am. To look for, quote-unquote, reasons is beside the point. But because the pursuit of reasons is their business here, they ask me questions. Maria. Maria yes or no i see a cock in this ink blot maria yes or no a large number of people are guilty of bad sexual conduct i believe my sins are unpardonable i have been disappointed in love how could i answer how could it apply nothing applies i print with the magnetized ibm pencil what does apply they ask as if the word nothing were ambiguous open to interpretation a questionable fragment of an icelandic ruin rune There are only certain facts, I say, trying again to be an agreeable player of the game. Certain facts, certain things that happened. Why bother, you might ask. I bother for Kate. What I play for here is Kate. Carter put Kate in there, and I'm going to get her out. They will misread the facts, invent connections, will extrapolate reasons where none exist. But I told you, that is their business here. And then we move into... The last section of our book, the last section of our sections in Play It As It Lays. Um, The next morning, in the dry, still heat, she woke crying for her mother. This uh, This is Maria. She had not cried for her mother since the bad season in New York, the season when she had done nothing but walk and cry and lose so much weight that the agency refused to book her. She had not been able to eat that year because every time she looked at food, the food which seemed to arrange itself into ominous coils. She had known there was no rattlesnake on her plate, but once the image had seized her, there was no eating the food. She was consumed that year by questions. Exactly what time had it happened? Precisely what had she been doing in New York at the instant her mother lost control of the car outside Tonopah? What was her mother wearing thinking? What was she doing in Tonopah anyway? She imagined her mother having a doctor's appointment in Tonopah and the doctor saying cancer and her mother cracking up the car on purpose. She imagined her mother trying to call her from a payphone in Tonopah, standing in a booth with all her quarters and dimes and nickels spread on the shelf and getting the operator and getting New York and then, then the answering service picking up the call. Maria did not know whether any of that had actually happened, but she used to think it, used to think it particularly around the time the sun set in New York. Think about the mother dying in the desert, light the daughter unavailable in the eastern dark. She would imagine the quarters and dimes and nickels spread out on the shelf in the light in the cottonwoods and she would wonder what she was doing in the dark what time is it there her mother would have asked had she gotten maria what's the weather she would have left a coded message said goodbye one time maria had saved enough money to give her mother a trip around the world but instead she had lent the money to ivan costello and then her mother was dead i'm not crying maria said when carter called from the desert at 8 a.m i'm perfectly all right you don't sound perfectly all right I had a bad dream. There was silence. You called the doctor? Yes, I called the doctor. She spoke very rapidly and distantly. Everything's arranged, Everything perfectly taken care of. What did? I have to go now. I have to hang up. I have to see somebody about a job. Just hold on a minute, Maria. I want to know what the doctor said. She was staring into a hand mirror, picking out her mother's features. Sometime in the night, she had moved into a realm of miseries peculiar to women, and she had nothing to say to Carter. I said, what did they say, Maria? They said they'd call me up someday, and on the day they called me up, I'd meet them someplace with a pad and a belt and $1,000 in cash. All right, Carter? All right? When faced with a hellish decision, the worst thing possible is to be cut off from your tradition cut off from your roots there is something about uh, being faced with a decision that is untenable that causes people to search for something that is easy to hold on to something that is well meaningful something that it feels solid before we killed god in the west um Religion used to serve that function. And then even before religion, tradition used to serve that function. In America, however, where, as we talked about on the Virginia Woolf episode, the virus of luxury beliefs has infected us all the way down to the middle class and the poor, we are now cut off from our roots. And so when that happens, suicide Uh, Begins. Disintegration begins. Slowly at first uh, and then all at once. Kind of like the way that one character described going bankrupt in The Sun Also Rises. In Play It As It Lays, Maria and Carter have a struggle with a child. They also have the struggle with the dissolution of their marriage the dissolution of their careers, and, of course, fundamentally, the dissolution of an unborn child. When you're cut off from your roots, when you're faced with hellish, hellish decisions, as you most assuredly will be, when you're faced with evil that is chaotic and seems to be as meaningless, or maybe even is as meaningless, as the snake Maria mentioned. Being cut off from your traditions, being cut off from your roots and floating aimlessly isn't going to help you. Having all of your options open isn't the way forward. By the way, having all your options open, that's a luxury belief as well. The fact of the matter is that we in the West, and this is something that leaders need to pay attention to, along with the gambling and the searching for meaning and the recognizing of the Luciferian deception, leaders have to be able to differentiate between the simple and imperfect good. They have to be able to differentiate that from the nihilistic evil pretending to be complex. And at the core of relational collapse is this lack of being able to differentiate between the imperfect good and the nihilistic evil pretending to be complex. Leaders need to get a hold of that. They need to bind that together. This is a daunting task, and I don't want to minimize it in the least. We are so far gone into the backwash of postmodern dread that we as leaders need to practically begin to struggle with meaning. And Didion shows us the way. She gives us a snapshot of a woman's life where if one person had provided meaning for her, had provided a root for her, had provided stability for her, she would have made it. She probably would have been fine. Maria's mother was the person that she relied on to bring her a root, to hold her down, to tack her to the ground, so she wouldn't go floating away. By the way, this has happened in my own life. I mean, uh, when people that you love die, it does feel as though you are floating away. It does feel as though anything is possible. And that is both exhilarating and in equal parts terrifying. A leader's job is to guide people back to earth, guide people back to their traditions, back to their roots, so that something can be preserved for the future. So how do leaders stay on the path in this world in which we live? I mean, this is 2023. We are, gosh, well over 50 years down the road from Didion. And um, and it's not looking like it's going to be any better. Um, we have more material abundance in the West than ever before. And yet we have more spiritual poverty and psychological and moral confusion than ever before. We can't even get our movies and music right. What do leaders do in this environment? How do they help their followers find meaning? How do they take action along this path in the year 2023 and beyond? Well, the first thing that we do is, as leaders, we take a gamble on engaging with other people. And I don't necessarily mean the avatars uh, in your social media feed. Uh, That may be a good proxy for engaging with other people, but even there, as we mentioned before, there's problems. No, no, no. This requires going out in real life. This requires learning who people are. This requires being curious about their motives, their moods, and who they are. This is going to be a gamble. You will be taking a risk. But because you initiate, you will be at the top of that risk hierarchy. Now, will everybody like you all of the time, everywhere, all at once? Uh, No. (laughs) Sorry. What you will be doing, though, is you will be pushing back against the chaos The other thing that leaders do is they actively engage in understanding that there's all kinds of deceptions out there, not just from other people. Usually the biggest ones are from inside of yourself. And they actively work to purge those deceptions. They actively work to see themselves and reality clearer or in a more clear fashion. They engage with... um, hard people and do hard things so that they can find out more about themselves, so they can find out just how deep the rabbit hole goes. Now, this is not to engage in in selfish navel-gazing. This is to go out and to find their identity outward by going inward. Leaders establish traditions, and they establish patterns of behavior that are predictable. And then they maintain their roots and their traditions, kind of like watering a houseplant or taking care of a tree. Now, some people are better at taking care of plants than others. I, I know that uh, as the average person, I am not that great at taking care of plants. It's a miracle that my money tree is still alive. Even I'll admit that. But the fact of it being a miracle doesn't mean that I haven't put in the work And so they put in the work on their roots. They put in their work on their traditions and they value those. And quite frankly, they defend them. Is there a time when those traditions and those roots need to be questioned, need to be dug out? Perhaps. But I think there's been quite enough of that done already. Finding meaning means maintaining roots, maintaining traditions, growing things in the real world with real people. And then finding meaning in the real world with real people doing real things that really matter. And playing the long game and taking a big gamble that you just might lose, but you also might win. And remember, you cannot win, nor can you lose if you don't. Play the game. And well, that's it for me. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules and over 100 hours of video and written content for you. At leadingkeys.com that's leadingkeys.com we've also got books that will help you and your team grow pick up a copy today of my boss doesn't care 100 essays on disrupting your workplace by disrupting your boss and subscribe to the little red podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that little red book my most recent book is 12 rules for leaders the foundation of intentional leadership co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan. This is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com now. You pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as eBooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast. That's right, I do do more than one. The Haysan Sorrells Presents Audio Experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.